Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome. It is time uh, for us to begin. So yesterday, uh, we started our time together with questions, not to give answers to those questions, but just to hear what other people uh, were thinking and what kinds of questions were emerging as we spent our time together. This morning, I want to start with the opposite, and that is I'd like to hear what kind of answers you yourself have found uh, over the last few days. And here's what I mean by answers. Uh, when we come together in a, a time like this, of course, there'll be lots that we learn, and then we'll have new questions. But hopefully, there'll also be a few answers that come to us that will be concrete and helpful for our calling. And I think it would be good to start this morning with just a few minutes uh, of sharing some of the answers that we feel we've uh, been receiving as we spent time together. And not a long time here, but enough time to hear maybe what some others are learning uh, for their own calling. So I'll give you my own uh, answers, two of them as an example. When uh, Fleming's talk finished, uh, I, uh, after the dinner, I felt very happy and glad that I was there because I, it reminded me that if I want one thing always to think of when I go uh, to prepare my sermon, it should be that Jesus is alive. That's kind of an answer that I, I think I've, I'm going to take away from this time, that I can remember that each time I sit down to write. And then last night, uh, as Eric uh, was reading that address of his father's, uh, I feel that one answer I got was uh, it, it would be hard to overestimate uh, the complexity of a father's impact upon his son for good. And, and that's, that, I'm sure that goes for mothers and daughters and sons but it would be good to remember that, to take that away also. Uh, the single word for us this morning is the word work. And I chose to put this one last uh, because it's tempting when we're together as pastors to think, well, what are we supposed to do? And what uh, I intended in the ordering of my presentations to speak first of witness and then of liberation was to say that before we ask what to do, we should see what God has done. And really that was maybe the simplest way to describe liberation. That's what God has done. And in light of that work, in light of what God has done, then we have work to do. And it's a fair thing to ask, as was asked yesterday, if witness is primarily who we are, what about the element of witness in, in what we're supposed to do? That was a great question yesterday. And that's a fair one, and, and one that we're, in, in some measure, those of us who are pastors are employed and even paid uh, to, to do something, right? And so we have something to do. And what I want to do this morning is to, as clearly as I can, uh, answer that question in a way that has sort of two or three elements. On the one hand, in a way that's faithful to what Bart would say, because this is, after all, a Bart conference. So how would Bart answer that question? What are we supposed to do? More important than that, in a way that actually has to do with Scripture's answer to the question. What are we particularly called to do? And I think Bart was guided most profoundly uh, in his seeking answers by listening to the Word. Uh, pastors should read the Bible uncommonly often. Uh, I had a real privilege in my first five or six years of ministry because it wasn't yet a church where I was in charge of my own time in a way that's unique. I, I would get up in the morning and, and each day I was free to read the Bible for one hour and take notes. And I did that for five years. And that was only because I didn't have, um, might it be unfair to say maybe, but I didn't have all the things that have like session and committees and et cetera. Uh, and God used that tremendously for me. 
Um, but, but that's a second reason to, to dwell on this, or, or the, the quality of Bart's answer comes out of scripture. The third is I'm hoping that this would be practical, that it would actually uh, aid each of us in the, the, the daily tasks that we have. Uh, now, uh, I want to say this as simply as I can before I get into Bart. The work that we're responsible for, okay, this is about the work that you specifically have to do. It's always good. And I know right now you're thinking, wait, no, 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 you, you don't understand. No, it is always good in that it is work undertaken in response to God's good work for the world. If the work that you're undertaking isn't in response to God's good work for the world, the question you should ask is, am I supposed to be about this or not? And really, that doesn't mean you only choose the things which are fun and pleasant. Plenty of the things which you're responsible for in response to what God has done are very unpleasant, but they're good. And there's virtue in working hard even though nothing in you feels like it. Uh, think of the thing which God worked in his people as they wandered in the desert for a long time. The gospel is what God has done. And I pause there because it's so easy to think, well, what are we supposed to do? And some people that you are called to be with will think, unless you tell the people what they did wrong and make them feel bad and show them what they're supposed to do in response, that's not yet the full gospel. No, the gospel is what God has done. Uh, because of or in response to or out of what God has done, the mission of the church in general and the calling of the pastor in particular take rise. So everything that your church as the church is called to be is supposed to be doing is, is taking its rise out of what God has done. Or the question is, is this what we're supposed to be about? And I think this is true. This is very, very, uh, this comes right out of my reading of Bart. Uh, to put it simply, in Christ, God has made everything right. Now, Bart says that in 10,000 ways. And, and if you want to know how to say the gospel in creative and concrete and ways that connect and that grow to scripture, if you would, if you read through uh, his pages and have your pen at hand, you're, you're going to read a lot of things that make no sense to you, right? You probably don't read Latin. I don't. Or German. So what? Skip it. And then, but you'll find little places where you can underline it and say, oh yeah, he's talking about the gospel here. The glad and gladdening news of God's deliverance. That's just one little tiny way he says it. It's all over the dogmatics like that. But uh, the gospel is that God in Christ has made things right, and, and he continues to make things right. Not that that happened there and that's it. He continues to make things right and will continue to make things right. And the, the right which God makes things doesn't always feel right to us. It, and if there's a question about this, all you have to do is look at Jesus. And it was right that he walked on that road. It was right that he received the kind of treatment he did. It was. The church's gift and task is to bear witness to what God has done. First, to see and then to show what God has done. And that's all it is, and that's enough. And the pastor's gift and task is to bear witness to this fact first to see it, and then to show it, that is all, and that is enough. Uh, it happens that in German, the word gift and the word task sound a lot alike, Gaba and Aufgabe. And so Bart plays on this a lot. But there's real theological significance in that parody between those two words, if you think about it. 
The gift, which is what God has done for us, also is the task out of which we are to do what God has called us to do. And when we do that, it's a pleasure and it's joyful and it's really hard. Isn't it hard work? Yes. So uh, I have a quote here that's extended and I want to build everything really in the next uh, 40 minutes around this singular quote. It's from volume three, four, uh, and the sub, uh, the subheading there is the verdict of the Father. This is where Bart's talking about Jesus as the one who takes this journey into the far country on our behalf. It's a, it's a brilliant um, sort of exegetical and theological move. He, he imagines that the son in the parable of the, uh, the, the waiting father, or however you call it, the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, that in some measure Jesus did that for us. He went into the pigsty. It's, it's too much to get into for now. But in that section, uh, he, he describes Jesus as the judge who is judged in our place, and that's how we're liberated. And, and the verdict of the father, uh, which was guilty of, upon himself in effect, uh, it puts us in the position of having the, the opposite verdict, which is innocent. And that's, again, one of the images that the, the Bible uses for our deliverance. Uh, but there's a, a very brilliant paragraph in volume three, four, which in effect, I think, anticipates what Bart will do in volume four, in his thinking about uh, justification and sanctification and vocation. And it kind of wraps up everything I wanted to say here. So that's where we're going to go. Here's the first part of that statement. And, and you'll notice that I don't have the page number there. I wrote this down in my notebook, and I forgot to write the page number. And I tried to find it on an electronic device. As good as they are, I couldn't find it. And it proves that paper is better than electronics. <laughs> but that doesn't help you when you haven't brought the volume. So um, if someone's really curious about this, the best. What page was it? I don't know, but. <laughs> Wait. It just starts there and goes. I can't make it work. Okay, yeah, there it is, right there. Oh, we had it. Okay, we're gonna get the page number in case you want to read it on your own, and and it's worth reading on your own. Uh, I, can, would you, Scott? Would you? Oh, there we go. Three seventeen. It looks like. I don't know if this is the same as, as the, um, thank you so much, if this uh, page number will be the same as what you'll find in this one, which is the one that I have, but it's worth reading this and the material around it, it's beautiful. Look at what he says. This is, the, this is another way Bart says the gospel. In Jesus Christ, the alteration of the human situation did take place and does take place today. The situation of Christians and of all men and women the reconciliation of the world with God in him who is the living mediator between God and man and we could add and woman in the power of his resurrection. Uh, take a little, let's take a little time here. Uh, first thing to note is that something actual and not potential has in fact happened and is happening and will happen. Uh, a real alteration, a change in circumstances has been affected, even though it's not experienced by some or many or me, maybe even us at times. It has, in fact, taken place in Jesus Christ, in his life and his death and his resurrection as the Son of God. And in a word, what's happened is reconciliation. And, and I, I want to start by saying how critical it is to understand that, uh, first, if you want to have a fair reading of Bart, he believes something really did happen actually, not a potential, but an actual occurrence. And, and I pause there to say it will be uh, 
in many folks' ears, strange to think of the gospel in this way because they'll have been taught to think that, oh, the gospel is if you do these things, then this thing happens and you get to be in heaven rather than hell. And we're asking the wrong question if we start asking, well, what about the eternal fate of everyone? And Bart would say, before you ask that, we, we need, it's good enough to pause and say, well, what does the gospel say? And what it says is God was in Christ reconciling the creation to himself. That happened. Whether people know it or feel it or not is a secondary thing. It actually happened. And reconciliation, that word, it's one but not the only word that Paul uses, that the Bible uses to capture this brilliant and good and glad news. It's the setting right of something that had gone wrong. And by the way, when I say it like that, it communicates probably more directly than when you use the word reconciliation, which in the ears of the people that you'll preach to tomorrow may sound like a church word. But when Paul used it, when the gospel, uh, when, when, when it comes up in other places, when Bart uses it, he means you to understand it concretely. Something was wrong, and it's been set right. That's what reconciliation means. Uh, there are other ways that word functions. There was an animosity between warring parties, and it's been, it's, it's been evaporated. That anger between two, it's a relational word. This fight is over. Uh, there, there's peace where there had been war. That's what reconciliation means. It's also used in, in, uh, in ancient Greek in medical parlance. When a bone is broken and out of joint and it's set right, it's, re it's either justified, that's what the word justified often is used there, or, or reconciled. Uh, in the resurrection, that is when, when Christ lived for us and the world and died for us and the world and then rose for us and the world, in that event, there's come about a complete and total change in the situation between God and the world. Uh, you'll know John 3.16, right? For God so loved what? Not, right, the world, the cosmos. That's all of creation. Not the people who would do the following things once and then in this way continue to go. Again, that's not to imply it doesn't matter what any one of us or any person does. It surely does, but not uh, primarily. Uh, this fact of Jesus overcoming sin and death and bringing new life has altered the situation for Christians and for all men. How so? H how has it, in fact, done that? Uh, this is, this, I don't have an answer in a sentence. This is one of the ways, I think, that we're called as uh, people who stand up and speak before others to do our best to tell the truth, to try to unfold for the people that God has given us to speak to how the reconciliation of the world in Christ has in fact happened and what it looks like. And here, uh, if we go into the scriptures with our imaginations open, we'll have everything we need uh, to be used by God to show others what it means. And, and I mean everything. And you should use your imagination when you approach the scriptures. Uh, when I was a second or third year student at seminary, I read Homiletic, that, that book that now is that awful pink, you know the one? Um, actually, fine. Let's, let's not be mean against pink. It's beautiful. But it, it feels overly technical to me, especially now when I look back at it, and, and grumpy, etc. except for this one moment where he says, the exegete should approach the text as a, ch a child in a wondrous garden. Um, when was the last time you did that? So let's do that, all right? Approach the text as, as a child in a garden. I'm going to do that in front of you now, okay? 
Uh, there's a story in 2 Kings, and it's, it goes from chapter 6 to chapter 7. And it tells of uh, a really dreadful moment in the history of God's people. Uh, the city, the capital city of the northern kingdom at that time is Samaria. And there's a neighbor, his name is Ben-Hadad. He's the king of Aram. And he musters his troops and he lays siege to Samaria. Now, Samaria was chosen as the capital city because it's on a hill, uh, and an interesting sort of hill, not like this, but it's sort of the highest point, and the geography goes around. And, and ancient uh, Israelites were smart enough to know if you choose that kind of location for your capital and someone comes against you, you can fight them off. But uh, Ben-Hadad was very, in terms of military, he was very clever. And what he did is he slowly had his troops set up their tents far away and then close in and, and what a siege, and we use that word now, oh, I'm under siege. We have no idea what that means. A siege is they prevent all commerce coming in and going out of the city so that what happens is there's no more food for the people in the city and in that way they kill them all, slowly but surely. And that happened. Uh, now, the way the conditions of the city are described is like this. You couldn't buy a donkey's head for 80 shekels of silver or a quarter cab of dove's dung for one shekel of silver. And a donkey's head is the worst possible thing you could ever eat. Unless you were starving, you would never eat it. And 80 shekels of silver is a lot. And the dove poop is what you use to cook your food. You couldn't even get that, even if you were wealthy. And here you need to use your imagination uh, to try to picture what that would be like. And, and, and use your imagination like this. There's a, a wall all around the city, and everybody who's anybody is right inside there of the wall, and they can't get the food they need. And this is what happens. The king of the city is walking on the outer wall when he overhears an argument between two women, and one of them reaches out to him. This is absolutely dreadful. One woman says, King, we need your intervention. I made a deal with her that we would kill her child and eat it, and we did. And now today she was supposed to kill her child so we could eat it, and she won't do it, and we need you to intervene. I remember I first came across this story 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I was reading the Bible carefully, and I thought this, shouldn't, this is so awful. And also it seems too far-fetched. I'm sad to say that now I feel like it's not far-fetched at all. And, when I, and I stay away from the news nowadays because I see things that aren't too different from this. And it is so horrendous to imagine. It's so horrendous to imagine. But that was the state of affairs in the city of Samaria because they were under siege. And nobody in the city could do anything about it. So when the king is told, he says, why are you telling me? Why don't you go tell it to God? And then he goes off and he tears his clothes and laments in front of everybody. So now all of God's people see the one person who's supposed to stand for the, the truth that God is able, uh, wailing. And he goes off and he tries to find Elisha. And when he sees Elisha, he says, it's God's fault. Everything that's happening is God's fault. That's how bad it is. Um, if you step back from the story and you ask, well, whose fault really is it? This is at least the way the narrators tell it. This is what happens when people wander away from the way of God. It gets this bad. So here we're using our imagination. A city which is all walled in, and there's nothing they can do to change their situation because it's just this bad. They're all going to die. Their fate is 100% sealed. And they're so far away from God, they even think it's God's fault. 
And Elisha tells the king, as the king has now just said, well, it's God's fault. Elisha says, you, you watch. Tomorrow in the city, you can get a choice measure of flour for, uh, for nothing. Uh, two measures of barley. It, you, you'll have more than you could possibly need. Now, Elisha doesn't know how, but in his mind, he knows what will happen. And that is, listen now, God will do something that makes everything right. It will not be because of any person, but God's going to do something that's going to set it all right. And Elisha knows it. And he tells the king. King doesn't believe him, goes back. So you got the story so far? I can remember the first, or sorry, the third year that I was working with high school students, there was a kid named Caleb who was in our group. And one night after the group was done, and, and none of the kids were church kids. But, you know, the, their parents would pick them up in Red Bank where we met. And he was there uh, late. And it was 10 o'clock. And we said, Caleb, what's going on? My parents are not going to get me, he said. And we said, well, why not? And he said, I, I, I can't tell you, but they just won't get me. And so my wife and I took him back, and he stayed at our house that night. And the next day, his father reached out to me and said, I'm sorry you had to deal with my son. And I said, well, it was OK. And I asked him, can we meet? I thought, maybe if I meet this man, I can make some progress in helping him. He sat down and for the first you know, 15 minutes explained why his son wasn't allowed to come home. And, and excuse my language, but he said, he's a piece of shit. He's, he knows that all he's supposed to do is take out the garbage, and he didn't do it. And then he said, he explained to me how annoying it was that his son uh, wouldn't let him do the work that he needed to do for this new career change he was exploring. And I'm sorry to say that the career change was, he said, I feel I'm called to be a pastor. No. Yes. I'm sorry. I, could, I couldn't believe it. And, and, and what I thought is this, this poor young man, Caleb, is like uh, a child who's being devoured. And the story gets worse. I won't share the rest of the details. But the truth about your calling in ministry is that all the time you'll be interacting with people whose lives are in that much disarray. And maybe yours is too, and you could, as I talk about it, you think, but yeah, but me too. And, and if you compare how bad it is for you to how bad it is for someone else and say, well, I'm not supposed to feel bad, the worst you've ever lived through is the worst that you've ever lived through. And so that condition of being under siege and starving is something that each one of the, the people you speak to and you yourself will know of somehow from the inside. So here's the next narrative development in this story. Here we're using our imagination. And this is really in the story. Outside of the city gate, there are four leprous men. And to be outside of the city gate because you're leprous means you are hopeless, except for one thing which gives you hope, and it is that when travelers come into the city or out of it, they hand you something out of pity. But in this beautiful narrative moment, they're actually in the same position as everybody in the city for the first time, because nobody has anything. And what happens is the four of them have a brief conversation. They say, hey, listen, if we went back in the city, it wouldn't help us. They're not allowed to go back in the city because they're outcasts. But it wouldn't help us because everyone's starving in there and will die. And so one of them says, why don't we go out to the enemy and defect? Either they'll kill us, which is going to happen anyway, or perhaps we'll find mercy from them and receive something. And so at twilight, they get up and they start going out toward the tents. And what they don't know is that God had made a sound of chariots and horses in the ears of all of the soldiers inside of those tents, so that prior to their arrival, all of the soldiers have fled. And God did that. Uh, like Elijah had said, uh, this time tomorrow you'll have everything you need. And, and God did something 
that no one participated in to fix everything by chasing away all of the soldiers. So that when the four lepers arrive at the tents, they find those tents empty of the enemy but fill, filled with provisions. And, and, and picture it now, an entire army's worth of provisions. And you see now what has happened is everything that was wrong has been made right. And not because of anything that they've done, but because of what God has done. And listen, it's not just that it's right for them now, but everything is right for everyone in the city, too. Do you see it? The only difference between the lepers and the people in the city is that the lepers have been given to know this by God's grace, and the others don't know it yet. So as long as they remain starving in the city, they are suffering from uh, uh, an imagined enemy, an enemy that's already been overcome. They're, they're dying unnecessarily. And the real question will simply be, what will the lepers do with what they've been given to know? And so I would suggest that this is one of the many ways that you can come to Scripture and then see that it brilliantly depicts your and my position, both as the unlikely benefactors of what God has done without our participation, uh, but not only the benefactors, but the ones who now bear a certain responsibility. Now we have some work to do. You see it? Okay, now listen to this. Uh, when the lepers get to the tents, this is what happens. When these leprous men had come to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. Of course they did, right? For the first time, now they're nourished. And I imagine that they had some good, good wine, and it was aged wine or something like that. And they had joy and pleasure. And then, listen to this, they carried off silver, gold, and clothing and went and hid them. So their instinct after feeding themselves was to start taking the goods and hiding them in the bushes. And then, uh, then they came back, entered another tent, and carried off the things in it and went and hid them twice. Does it seem absurd to you? No? It should seem absurd to us. It does seem absurd to one of them eventually. Then they said to one another, what we are doing is wrong. And then this phrase, and I don't know if this phrase appears anywhere else in the Old Testament. If someone else knows, tell me. This is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, we'll be found guilty. Therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. So they come to their senses, and they realize that their instinct to hide and hoard and keep for themselves what is far beyond what they could ever use. They can't ever use it. If they keep the food uh, for themselves, it will spoil before it nourishes them at all. And what will be lost is the opportunity to feed everyone who is starving without needing to starve because there's more than enough food for everyone. And if they're only nourished, then they can become the ones who live out of this free gift so that goodness spreads. And so I would suggest that for us, the most important thing to ask, perhaps, where we find ourselves as the recipients of this good news is where are the places where what we're doing is wrong, given the fact that this is a day of good news? And I think that, that could be everything maybe that needs to be said about our work, that we should think of our work like we're these lepers who've been given this brilliant gift, not only for us, but for everyone. And it is, in fact, an alteration of the human situation that has taken place in Christ. Uh, not potentially, it's actual. And our distinction from others is that we've just been given to see this difference. And seeing that, now we can see that we're in solidarity with everyone else. 
in solidarity, first of all, in that our impossibly desperate situation has been overcome by God, thank goodness. That's the first way we're in solidarity with everyone. So any feelings of superiority to those who don't think like us or believe like us or act like us or vote like us or dress like us or whatever ways we tend to divide up, that's diminished by our unity in our common need being met by God's common grace. And, and, and then any ways our churches or we ourselves as individuals are hoarders of this goodness, um, we should say this is wrong, what we're doing. And by the way, if you find yourself miserable in your calling, I'm going to dare to say this. Maybe it's because you haven't seen just yet how you have been given into the temptation to hoard. And, and, and not just in the obvious ways, maybe in the obvious ways that you've nurtured your church's desire to have everything just for itself. That's obvious. Maybe there is never going to be joy in that kind of ministry, and there shouldn't be. Uh, but maybe not just that way. Maybe the way that you've withheld this good and glad news from other people, afraid of what they might think if you tell them, how they might judge you. Maybe they'll find you to be offensive or intolerant because you're telling them about Jesus, and they don't want to hear that name. It's too exclusive. Of course, he's been representative as such, but, but in reality, no. This is a good gift for everyone. By the way, uh, when the lepers go back into the city, maybe you can guess how people receive them. They think they're lying. They think, oh, this must be a, a, you know, some kind of ploy or trick. And we shouldn't blame the world around us if its first thought when we come to them is that, oh, yeah, it's these Christians. We know who they are. It's some kind of trick. Because sadly, that has been the mission in ministry, maybe in many different ways, a trick. But, uh, but put, the, put those negative things behind. If you would sort of sally forth with the confidence of, I've been given this free food, and I get to share it with others, I, I suspect that your own relationship with your work would change. And I put myself in this boat, by the way, too, because I am so often pulled right back into the many other things that the church thinks is its main work that have nothing to do with this. And then I get grumpy. And then I want to lie on the couch and watch reruns of The Office and sleep under a pile of blankets until it all gets better. <laughs> Here's how that quote continues from 3-4. Because someone might ask, okay, well, if God's altered the situation for everyone, then what, what's there for us to do? What difference does any of our work make? Here's what Bart says about that. What remains for them, and this is for, for all of us who are pastors, it is for all of us who are professors or therapists or teachers or people who just go to church and have decided to come here anyway or who aren't even sure that there is really truth in all of this. This is actually for all of us. What remains for them is high and appropriate and joyful and stringent enough. Uh, it's high enough. That means this is the best possible work. The work that we've got is the best possible work. It's appropriate um, last night in Eric's address, there, there was a word that came up. It wasn't exactly correspondence. Congruence. I think it's very similar to correspondence. I think one way that Bart talks about our calling is to correspond to what God has done in Christ. That's what a Christian is. It's someone whose life corresponds with or measures up to or, or in effect balances out the great gift of God's grace in Christ. That's all we're supposed to aim for. And that's appropriate. And it's joyful. And here, this is, I love this. Bart says that if the work that you're engaged in is not joyful, the real question you should ask, is this in fact Christian work? It, it, because if it's not full of joy, maybe I've got my, myself on the wrong path. Um, too often the church thinks its responsibility is to point out how everything's wrong. And I've even heard some of that in our own sharing. 
And it's not bad to point out how everything is wrong, but it's much better to point out what's good and what's right uh, and stringent. Uh, one of the many ways that I, I think, in, in, for me personally, that's, in a way that's helpful, uh, Bart reminds us that, look, we have good and hard work to do, and we should be okay with that. And here's the first bit of the work, which is all of these things. It is to welcome the divine verdict. That's the first thing. And I think, roughly speaking, even though this is in volume 3, 4, I think he's got in his mind the theological work he'll do when he, first of all, describes God's justifying work in Christ, and this is in paragraph 61, justification, and then in paragraph 62, the church as the community which the Holy Spirit is awakening to uh, uh, God's verdict in Christ and then making ready for life under that verdict, I think all that amounts to is welcoming, that we get to welcome what God has done. We get to go in the tent and eat and drink. And that's work. And, and I would say it really is work. Uh, Henry Nouwen, is that a name familiar to you? I found recently a friend of mine forwarded a, 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 an excerpt from one of his sermons on YouTube to me. I don't remember the title of it, but I bet if you put it in Henry Nouwen on YouTube, you'll see some of his sermons. And, and it's just like an eight-minute clip where he says, the most critical thing is for us to accept that we are the beloved. That's it. That's the most important work your whole life long is to accept that, that you're the beloved. And it is magnificent the way he preaches. So you should look at that. But that's welcoming the divine verdict. And that's the first thing that we're supposed to do. It's our work. So before we ask, what do we do out there? This is really right back with us yesterday and the day before to witness, to see what God has done so that we can show it, to see his liberation. Our work is to welcome the divine verdict, which says of us, all is well. Uh, take it easy. And don't try so hard. To gladly accept God's free deliverance of us from the consequences, and let me be concrete here, of our sin. Uh, the city was starving because it wandered away from God. But God did not let them languish in the outcome of the path that they had gone down, but instead he ran down that path and took their place. I'm now thinking of Jesus, of course. God didn't just make a sound. He became a person who died the death of a criminal so that we'd have everything we need to eat, and he's done it. And, and the first bit of work is to gladly accept that. The second bit of work is to take it seriously with full responsibility. Uh, I, I may be wrong about this, but I think it's still interesting that maybe this second bit of work corresponds with sanctification, what Bart will develop in 70, excuse me, in 66, and then paragraph 67, uh, say how that works out in the church. To take with full responsibility what God has done is the, the Holy Spirit empowering us for a life that corresponds with or is congruent with what God has done. And that's what sanctification is. The upbuilding of the Christian community by the power of the Holy Spirit is, is the subject matter of um, paragraph 67. That's the church. The church is the event in which, by God's power, uh, those who are gathered are able to take it seriously and with full responsibility. Uh, and, and I want to be very clear here. It's the Holy Spirit that does this in us. But God does this in the power of the Holy Spirit, not without us. That we are not, um, we're not made into robots or machines, but we're still free human beings. And how that works is a very difficult thing to untangle in Bart's work. But human agency remains intact in a brilliant way in his understanding of God's sovereignty. And that's maybe for next Bart conference. Uh, the third thing and this gets to maybe the most practical elements of our work, is not to keep their knowledge of it to themselves, but by the witness of their existence and proclamation, 
to make it known to the world which is still blind and deaf to this verdict, the alteration which has in fact taken place by it. Doesn't that seem like it actually fits in a sort of uncanny way with that narrative in 2 Kings? I, I can't remember uh, whether this particular understanding of that narrative that I've just sort of unfolded is in Bart or not. I don't think it is, actually. Look it up in the index, and maybe someone will find out. But if it's not in there, I promise you that my openness to seeing what I've seen in that story and lots of other scriptures has come from the way that I've been formed by Bart theologically, not because I know how to unfold the super esoteric and weird ideas that only scholars can talk about and write really incredibly brilliant and tangled up papers about that they all like a lot. Um, I can't do that. But my theological imagination has been formed by the way Bart deals with scripture. And I think it fits really well here. Uh, that's what our work is. It's not to keep our knowledge of it to ourselves. But there's a lot here by the witness of their existence first. That is to live in a manner that shows that we've been nourished by this food that's out there in the tents. To come back with a sort of glow uh, and strength that says without any words they've been eating something really good. And that's our calling. That's our work. To eat and drink. Here, think about uh, going to the table and not just telling other people but yourself hearing the words that Christ's body has been broken and given for you and the blood has been poured out for you and you're renewed and made new and strengthened again and then again and then again. And by the way, if, if there's no, uh, if you're so far away from that that you yourself are starving, maybe you say to your session, I need to go and, and uh, do something else for a little bit. I needed a break. And that's okay. Maybe you need to go off into the wilderness and um, you know, camp for a little while and go fishing, go fly fishing in a stream or paint paintings or uh, who knows what it is that uh, refreshes you, but maybe you need to do that. But not only by the witness of your existence, but by the witness of your proclamation. And here, already Bart, he is thinking about things like preaching and teaching. And later on in volume 432, especially in paragraph 72, there is the very best unfolding of what preaching is that I think Bart has written, but that has been written. There are some things that, that maybe you can leave that he says that are wrong. I, I really believe that. But there's wonderful teaching about how it's your proclamation that makes it known. Um, enough to say this morning is that your proclamation always has the yes of God as its primary note, rather than the no, unless. Uh, I, think, I think it was Paul in... Um, in his letter to Timothy, maybe, if, so, if someone remembers this, uh, the promises of God in Christ are yes, not no and yes. Is that in Timothy? Anyway, it's somewhere in the Bible. You should find it. <laughs> Let me see if there's other stuff here. Our work uh, is to receive the gospel and to take it seriously and then uh, not keeping our knowledge of it to, the se uh, to ourselves uh, to make it known this is very important, to the world which is still blind and deaf. Uh, it's not the world for which this doesn't yet count or, uh, to whom this news, or for whom this news has no uh, validity until. Uh, it's just that they haven't heard or seen it yet. And so what they need is someone to tell or show it uh, because the alteration that has happened there is, in fact, 
uh, genuine and true uh, alteration. This is a very strong statement about the being of the church as the church and also you. Their existence in the world depends upon the fact that this alone is their particular gift and task. Uh, I'll say, just as an aside, if it's not our, if, it, if, we don't, if we're not constantly taking it up as our task and our gift, then what Bart would say is you've compromised your existence to the point that there's a question whether you're still a Christian or whether that's still a church. He says some really strong stuff about the church in volume three, four in this paragraph, where he says stuff like, if everyone in the community is not a witness in this sense, he says missionary in this sense, not the technical sense of going to another land, but to have been a, a, a man or a woman who, because of what they've seen, is on the lookout for others who also can become potential missionaries having seen this, then it's, they're not Christians and it's not a Christian church. So this is very uh, combative language, he says. Uh, but he says this, and this is freedom. They have not to assist or add to the being and work of their living Savior, who is the Lord of the world, let alone replace it by their own work. So you're free. You don't have to try to do all that stuff. You just have to witness to them. And the them refers to the things that are in the three dots, which would make the uh, quote too long. But what he says there is that we don't have to um, take responsibility for the incarnation, for the death and resurrection, the acts of God and the revelation. None of those things are ours. Um, thank goodness. And it's our consolation that we can do this, and our marching orders are to do it. Uh, so, so then if, if our calling is to be witnesses to this alteration that has, in fact, in, taken place in Jesus Christ, what specifically, then, can we say about what's coming for us on Sunday and the rest of the week in all the pastoral tasks that we have to manage? And uh, am I right that we're done at 1045? Okay. I've gotten used to an hour and 45 minutes, and so I have more than 10 minutes of material left. Um, but if it's okay, I'm going to keep, keep going, and then maybe we can have some questions at the end. Okay. This would be a good place to write down some pages. If you've been thinking, okay, maybe I'll read some BART, those pages right there and that section, I've found incredibly practically helpful for me as a pastor. There are so many books uh, for sale right now that will tell you, okay, if you get these things right, then your pastoral ministry is going to thrive. And I wouldn't buy any of those. Instead, just these pages, 830 to 901 in volume 432. Now, again, that's in the pages in this edition. It might be different in the electronic version or the, the ones that have been reprinted. But if you write that down, CD 432. I didn't write it there, but it's paragraph 72. And that, the ministry of the community, is the fourth part of that paragraph. And look how many pages it is. So there's a lot of material here. But in this section, which I've been told that in German, the word ministry sounds more like service than ministry. And the difference is important because ministry can sound a little too churchy, and service sounds much more concrete and earthy. But this is what the service of the community is meant to be. And, and it is good for you to think about it uh, in terms of your own personal work as a pastor or wherever you happen to be at work. Uh, this is the work for you personally and the work of the community. And before saying what it consists of, as Bart is uh, often inclined to do, he qualifies it by telling us the quality that it has, but that's actually helpful. And he says, these, he says three things about it. The first thing he says about the ministry of the community is that it's definite. It's not vague. It's, it's, it's precise already, and it's, uh, it's uh, circumscribed for us. It's a ministry, this is how it's definite, of service to God and to uh, the world of, of men and women. 
That's what, how it's definite. It's always service to God and to people. And it's service, this fits with what I talked about yesterday as liberation and witness. It's service where we stand between God on the one hand, serving God, and if serving God, then we turn from God to serve the world of men and women around us. And that's it. It's that definite. That's what our work is. It's service, which is active when we are on our way from God to people in witness. When the community is active in this definite work, it is the community. When it's not active, it's not the community. Again, that's a strong statement about the being of the church or your being as a pastor. The second thing he says about it, and we're going to say some more about this one, is that it's limited. He, he unfolds its limit in two senses. In terms of its power, it's limited. And in terms of its scope, also, it's limited. It's limited in power because this is freeing, okay? This is freedom here. It's limited in power because it can neither, the church can neither carry through God's work to its goal nor lead uh, men or, 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 or women to the point of accepting it. If that does take place at all, it does so in the power of the Holy Spirit, over whom you or the church have no power whatsoever. And so that's the limit of this definite task. If you think, how am I going to convince them? You're not. I once had a, a person uh, that I met in a, in a coffee shop. He had a, church, he had a shirt on that had a cross with a red X through it, and it said, Christianity is stupid. Give up. And so I went right up to him, and I said, excuse me. And, and in a kind way, I said, do you believe what's on your shirt there? And he said, uh, yes. And I said, Would, can we talk? I want to hear why you think that. And he said, oh, you're a Christian. You're going to try to save me. No thanks. I said, no, no, I am a Christian. I'm actually a pastor. I am not going to try to save you. I can't. I have no illusions about that. I would, you would help me do my job better if I could understand your perspective. And it took a lot of convincing for him to believe that I wasn't going to try to convince him. But he told me about why he thought that. Um, I have... You're, it's limited. You don't have to make anyone believe you can't. On the other hand, uh, its limit in scope uh, is that 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 our that that your community and you and this is the limit in scope you, there, that your ministry is nothing less, nothing more, and nothing other than the ministry of witness. And so, if this sounds like a repeat of yesterday, okay. But that word work there, if you want a single word for what all of the work that you're supposed to do actually comes down to, Bart will tell you it is witness. It's nothing less than that. It's nothing more than that. And it is nothing other than that. And nothing less than that, he means very simply that as the witness, you are to hear the word of God spoken, the word of the mediator, the word of his atonement, the divine covenant concluded and sealed in him, divine lordship established in him, and therefore of the new and true world reality, and then hearing that, you hear it in order to represent it to other people. And it is your joy that this is your work. And it's nothing less than that amazing work. It can never become, therefore, the dominant note of your work to tell the world where it's wrong and broken. It knows that already. Imagine those lepers running back to the city and saying, hey, you're all starving, and this is how bad it is for you, and pointing it out when there's all the food behind them. That would make no sense. But this is... Nothing less than that is your work. On the other hand, it's nothing more than that. The community is not responsible for reconciling the world. It's not responsible for the divine covenant. It's not responsible for the kingdom of God or the new reality of the world. None of those are your work. The manifestation of these things, not your job. Only to believe and then hope and therefore confess. Okay, so 
we can get ourselves tangled up in all kinds of projects which are, are not our work because they're way beyond it. And, and it's no more than simple witness. Uh, lastly, it's no other than witness, other, nothing other than that. And I'm going to really rush through this. There's a lot of other good things in the world that are being uh, conducted right now that are wonderful. And Barr calls them other lights in the world. And what he says essentially is, let their experts take care of them. Those other lights, I don't want to speak negatively about them, but let the church be responsible for the one thing the church is actually responsible for. Uh, I think already in the 60s, uh, the church in our country was losing its way by sort of giving into the illusion that, well, let's not sort of keep going with this gospel. Maybe there are other things that are more interesting and that will connect with people better than the gospel. Let's go in that direction. Uh, Peter Berger, who was a sociologist, I think he was in Boston, and not a theologian, I think wrote very brilliantly about this. It's in a Princeton Seminary bulletin, and it's somewhere around 1963, where he talks about the task of the church is to go ahead and tell the old story again. That's its only task. Stop trying to endear yourself to the world by becoming more adept at you know, postmodern philosophy than their own spokespeople. Leave that to them. Tell the story. Uh, so much for the limited quality of the ministry of the community. The third thing is that it is a, a, a task which is full of promise. And here it is for you, uh, a word of hope, when you start to think again about the meetings you have to run or the sermons you have to give or the prayer ministry that's not where it, you wish it were and you, needs to be developed better or the pastoral care that you're not qualified for and the Stevens ministry you group group that you put together has more issues than anyone they could help, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> it's full of promise because the community, this is Bart's words, these are Bart's words, the community, feeble people that it is, uh, need the assurance that as it undertakes and seeks to fulfill its ministry, its cause is righteous. That as, it, that, that as it discharges it according to the measure of its knowledge and resources, and, and by the way, this is my words, even if the measure of your knowledge and resources are far less than they should be, and being at a place like this makes you think, I, I have so much more to learn than I ever imagined. Okay, fine. Even still, that it is you are not left to your own knowledge and resources, and that it does not finally act in vain. Uh, these are my words. Even if it acts in ignorance, and, 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 uh, and no, no excuse, by the way, for not working hard, okay? Um, on, on your own, on its own, the community has nothing at all to set against all the reasons to be anxious. So you don't try to drum the, the courage up in yourself. You have nothing. You're hopeless. That's my words. Uh, hopeless when thrown back on your own resources. I count myself in this place as well. Yet, the promise of power and the effectiveness comes to you and to me as a free gift, never at our own disposal like a tool, but always to be hoped for, like the mercy which is new every morning. At bottom, the promise is the very task that we're given. Our work is our promise in that its witness is to what God has done for you and for me and for the world in his work of justifying and sanctifying and sending. At bottom, the promise is that what is said and entrusted to the community in and with its gathering, upbuilding, and sending in order, uh, it is said in order that we may repeat it to the world to which it is sent according to the measure of our own knowledge. And that's said to us too, thank God, that all is well, that God has said everything right, and therefore we can go forward without fear. 
Uh, this last word here from volume 432, which is in the midst of those pages which I gave you, there's a lot that comes after it, but I'll close with this. Witness as the sum of what must always take place in the Christian community is, and, and this is where Bart says definitely what your work is. It is declaration, exposition, and address, or the proclamation, explication, and application of the gospel as the word of God entrusted to it. You'll see two sets of three words there, and the first in each set corresponds to the other. And, and really what Bart does in the pages which follow is he unfolds all of the work that in any given time should be a part of the Christian community's work, and he says all of it is gospel. So it's, it's declaration, uh, which is also proclamation. It is exposition, which is also explication. And if those words seem to you so close that what's the difference? Read what Bart says here. It's really helpful, I think. And then finally... Uh, it's address and application of the gospel to the people that come uh, to be with you. The gospel has this alteration. And that's all your work is. Everything comes back to the gospel for Bart. And every bit of work. Um, maybe just uh, one last fact. Um, this is so amazing. Maybe two or three last facts. Is that okay? If my mic turns off, I'm going to just start talking louder. <laughs> um, Bart names 12, 12 forms uh, in which this gospel work will, will always be taking place in any community that is a, a community of the living Lord Jesus Christ. He, he lists 12 of them. And you can go through these and look and say, all right, how am I doing in my work in these 12? And what's so beautiful about it is he says, the first six are speech, which are also primarily, or sorry, which are also secondarily action. And then the second six are primarily action and also speech. And the first, which is primarily uh, action, but also speech. Uh, excuse me, I got that backwards. The first, which is primarily speech, but also action. The way that the church is first of all responsible for speaking the gospel. Any guesses what it is? Does anybody know? You're probably thinking, right, preaching, right? Or maybe theology or teaching. No, it's praise in the form of singing. And that's the first thing that he says. The church that mumbles spasmatically as it tries to sing the old hymns is no Christian church, he says. And then he has some scathing comments about organ voluntaries or solos. He hates them. <laughs> the second one is preaching. The third one is teaching. The fourth one is evangelization. Uh, or, uh, one, two, three, four... Uh, the fifth, excuse me, is mission abroad, and then the sixth is theology. These are the six which are primarily speech but are also action. He gets to the second set of six, and the first one, which is primarily action but also speech, how about trying to guess what this one is? No, of course you'd say that as a <laughs> professor. Of... By the way, Cure of Souls is in this second list, and it's act, which is also speech. And what Bart says there is absolutely brilliant. The aim of pastoral theology is to restore that man or woman to their true self so they can be a witness. It's so great. It's not just so you feel better. It's so you show. The first one is prayer. That's the first act. Haven't you ever been tempted to think, I can't pray because I have too many things to do. I have serious work to do here. And prayer, that's just what you say. No. Bart says that's the first work that is primarily act that we're responsible for. Uh, and then he unfolds. After prayer, he unfolds cure of souls. 
which really is, it's the best, it's very brief, but on pastoral counseling, uh, Christian action, diaconate, prophetic action, and establishing fellowship. Uh, all of these are your work, and their work which come back to one thing, the declaration of the gospel, the proclamation of, of the gospel, the address, the application, the explication, the explanation of the gospel among God's people, uh, and that is what we're called to do.